Welcome to our conversation series, and I'm your host, Tornike Mitreveli. This series aims to bring prominent scholars of religion to discuss topical themes in the format of a dialogue with an audience. We started this series via Zoom recordings, as you might recognize in the sound quality, but we will plan in the future to use Lund University Studios to improve the quality. In this episode, you will listen to the conversation with prominent theologian, Archimandrite Professor Kirill Hovron. In conversation with Professor Hovron, we'll look at the three wars waged during the 21st century, Georgia 2008, Ukraine since 2014, and Nagorno-Karabakh 2020. We ask, what was the role of Eastern Christianity How were these wars perceived and explained by other churches? Was there an inter-Orthodox solidarity with the peoples suffering in these wars? What were the possible religious underpinnings of these wars? In our conversation, we try to answer this and other questions, and I hope you will enjoy this. I'll introduce Kirill uh, Hoveron, and it's it's immense pleasure, of course, for numerous reasons to have Archimandrit Kirill Hoveron. Uh, here, great honor, is a professor of ecclesiology, international relations, and ecumenism at St. Ignatius College, at Stockholm School of Theology. As a graduate of Theological Academy in Kiev and National University in Athens, he accomplished his doctoral studies at Durham University under the supervision of Father Andrew Loth. And he was a chair, chairman of the uh, Department of External Church Relations of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church was first deputy chairman of the Educational Committee of the Russian Orthodox Church, and later a research fellow at Yale and Columbia Universities and a visiting professor at University of Münster in Germany, international um, uh, fellow at Chester Running Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at the University of Alberta in Canada, and the director of the Huffington Ecumenical Institute at uh, Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and assistant professor at the same university. His works have been translated in various languages, and he's published extensively. And I, I will start, I will mention uh, a few. He published several books, um, including Sacred Architecture in East and West, um, Political Orthodoxies, The Unorthodoxies of the Church Coerced, Again, uh, 2018, Minneapolis Fortress, there is a Ukrainian translation of the book. Ukrainian Public Theology, again, uh, published in 2017. And Scaffolds of the Church towards uh, post-structural ecclesiology. Again, is this is also available both in English and Ukrainian. Wonders of the Unorthodox Council and a number of other books. Um, so before we proceed uh, to... Uh, Uh, the discussion. I will give a few mm -hmm. rules. We will have an opening statement by Professor Hoveron, and then we will have time for for discussion. I hope you can hear my voice. Uh, yeah, um, and um, uh, and and obviously briefly about the event structure. Yeah, well, this introduction statements of uh, by Professor Kill Hoveron, 
and then we'll continue in form of a dialogue. But you will have, of course, the possibility to ask questions at the end of the uh, at the end of the conversation. Um, we are have we recording we're recording this uh, for for you know, logistical reasons, and we will uh, post this on our um, website web, web page of the institute. So those of you who do not have the uh, you know a possibility to attend, you will catch up with what we're at. So, the three wars waged during the 21st century, Georgia, 2008, Ukraine since 2014, Armenia, 2020. And we asked what was the role of Eastern Christianity in this? How were these wars perceived and explained by um, other churches? Was there an inter-Orthodox solidarity with people suffering in these uh, wars? What are the possible religious underpinnings of these wars? And in our conversation today, we'll try to answer these questions and other questions, but we need some kind of foundational theoretical argument to to uh, uh, to, to establish. And prior to going into the case studies, I'll give the floor to Professor Hoverun to discuss um, political concept of political orthodoxy, which he um, extensively wrote in in his books. What is it? How it works? Why it is significant to understand wars, which we will be discussing later. And also the concepts of war in Orthodox uh, Orthodox uh, theology. So I'll stop here, and the floor is yours, uh, Professor Hover. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Tonika. Thank you for inviting, for having me with you, uh, for the distinguished uh, audience. Um, well, I'm happy that uh, we have this conversation, which is a kind of inter-institutional uh, uh, within the same country, uh, Sweden. Uh, because I work for the Stockholm School of Theology, you know, work for Lund University, and we are indeed uh, neighbors. And uh, even though uh, physically we are quite in different countries, I think you are still in, in Switzerland, right? Yes, I, that's true. Hope, yeah, and I'm locked down in Ukraine, um, uh, but Sweden unites people. Um, so, yes. Uh, uh, I would like to probably begin with my personal memories. Uh, I remember in uh, I remember the summer of 2008. Uh, at the time, I was uh, <clears throat> working for the uh, external church relations of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church under the Moscow Patriarchate, and we uh, just hosted uh, Patriarch Bartholomew coming uh, to Ukraine uh, in July 28, uh, 2008 to celebrate. 1020 years from baptism of Kiev. Um, and uh, it was a very kind of tense uh, visit. Um, after the Patriarch of Moscow at the time, Alexei II, uh, learned about uh, the coming of Bartholomew to Kiev, he may immediately tried to catch up and he uh, arranged his own visit to. Uh, to uh, to the capital of Ukraine. And uh, um, the rumors said that the entire program of, of the visit was designed exactly to grant uh, or to, uh, to accept the schismatic groups in Ukraine to communion with the ecumenical uh, patriarchate, with the global orthodoxy, and probably to proceed to granting you know, autocephaly to this group, uh, something that did not happen in 2008 and happened only 10 years later and caused kind of a great turmoil uh, in the orthodox world. But at that time, I remember um, in July, I was a kind of in charge of the uh, of the process of, from from the side of the Moscow Patriarchate in Ukraine, and uh, uh, as I said, 
the atmosphere was very tense, was very uh, uh, difficult to, um, uh, well, to breathe in, uh, as it were. Uh, and uh, we were very close, you know, to, uh, to the break, uh, break up in our relations. I remember in my, my office in Kiev, <clears throat> the representatives of the Ecumenical Patriarchate and of the Moscow Patriarchate met and they said, well, we cannot agree, uh, we should just say that we are breaking our relations. And then they began talking and they eventually, you know, reconciled somehow. So it was a kind of a beginning of a war in a sense, and then that war ended. Um, somehow. I was very happy about that. Uh, after the visit was over and uh, all the patriarchs, you know, went uh, back to their own uh, home countries, <clears throat> I just um, <clears throat> tried to, you know, to relax a bit and to breathe, uh, you know, uh, uh, more freely. And then I learned a horrible news about the beginning of the war in Georgia. It was really a shock for me. I could not believe that this might happen. Um, I remember very well that day on August, in August uh, 2008, and uh, I just started thinking, what is happening in the Orthodox world? How it, this has become possible? Um, and it kind of this kind of thinking interfered with my previous experience of you know the two primates coming to Kiev to discuss the differences and uh, to discuss the schism, the, the division uh, in the, within the Christian community in Ukraine. And uh, even though, well, historically, those two events were not, were not uh, connected to each other, the war in Georgia and, you know, the coming of, of Patrick Bartholomew to Ukraine, uh, chronologically, they happened close to each other. And it was a kind of uh, a token, if you want, uh, a bad omen uh, for what would be happening soon when religious politics or inter-Orthodox politics, if you want, uh, uh, became it would become intertwined eventually with uh, real politics, real politics, with uh, uh, you know, with uh, uh, military action uh, and. Uh, those events somehow uh, incited me to begin thinking about the connection between, you know, what is happening within the Orthodox world with the ideologies that were evolving within the Orthodox um, world and uh, the conflicts, the real conflicts. And we face this kind of conflicts later on in Ukraine, exactly six years later. Um, uh, when Russia started its aggression against Ukraine, first by annexing Crimea and then by uh, waging a war, a war, a proxy war in, in Donbass. Um, so that's how I kind of, I was incited to think about this, uh, uh, about this topic, even though originally my, my field was very different. It was patristics. I dealt with, you know, late Byzantine uh, controversies, nothing to do with political theology whatsoever. And then I had to switch somehow to political theology. Um, um, reflecting on this topic post factum, I somehow uh, kind of summarized it by, by the term political orthodoxy. And I put this 
uh, phrase, catch phrase. It was the title of, of the book that I have uh, written indeed uh, while I was in California, in Los Angeles, this book, Political Orthodoxy. It's a kind of small book, relatively small book. Uh, but I try to uh, essentially figure out what is happening in the, in the Orthodox world that eventually leads to, to the military conflicts. Um, um, uh, you know, it was kind of an internal polemics with, uh, with some publications in Russia, uh, which also summarized how somehow the new ideological trends within the Russian church, the trend of the Russian world, if you want, you can put it in, in the term of uh, in the terms of the Russian world. And they branded this trend as political orthodoxy. There were people who propagated, who started propagating what they called political orthodoxy. Uh, so in order kind of to uh, respond to them or even to rebuke uh, their points, I, I began developing my own take on, on political orthodoxies. Um, and I should say that uh, uh, this kind of thinking received a, a, a momentum. And uh, quite soon after that, in particularly in May 2015 in Finland, uh, we had a wonderful conference which is called which was called branded political orthodoxy and totalitarianism in a post-communist era. So the term political orthodoxy became kind of internationalized, became a kind of catchword for, for this phenomenon uh, which uh, ravages the, the orthodox uh, realm, the, the orthodox world somehow. That conference in Finland was organized by the Orthodox Church of Finland, particularly the metropolis of Helsinki, Metropolitan Ambrosius of Helsinki was among the organizers. And it had a number of co-sponsors like the Wallace Theological Academy, the Center of uh, Eastern uh, Orthodox Studies at Fordham University in New York City, um, like Münster University and uh, the Romanian Institute for Inter-Orthodox uh, Studies in uh, Cluj-Napoca and, 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 and so forth. So it was a, a big inter international intra-Orthodox conversation where we began discussing political orthodoxy in the term, in the sense of an ideology which re-emerged in a new form within the Orthodox world and drives uh, you know, waves of violence. The waves of vi violence that led to the Georgian War in 2008 and then uh, culminated uh, somehow in the, in the Ukrainian War. Um, um, well, that is a kind of prehistory of the term political orthodoxy. And of course, I try to substantiate this term by uh, the theoretical research, by delving into uh, the, particularly the American concepts of uh, civil religion. Um, <clears throat> at the time when I familiarized myself with this concept, I was at Yale University and I remember very well um, uh, a lecture um, uh, uh, on, on American civil, uh, uh, civil religion um, uh, delivered at Yale University and uh, uh, it was um, essentially um, uh, kind of revealing, uh, revealing for me as a concept of civil religion, uh, which I thought is applicable to 
um, uh, is applicable to uh, to the orthodox situation, to the orthodox world, to what is happening in uh, in 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 well in the Russian Church. Um, also, yes, I should mention that uh, before uh, coming to Yale, I worked uh, as a theological advisor in the Moscow Patriarchate, and I had I was a witness, a kind of first-hand witness to how the concept of the Russian world was, uh, you know, emerging and was delivered eventually, how it was elaborated upon. Uh, I should say uh, that um, uh, this concept of the Russian world was produced by the church as a product of the church and an intellectual product of the church. Uh, it has been produced as an ideological project, as an ideology to substitute, you know, the, the outlived uh, communist ideology in order to provide a kind of an ideological backbone for for the political regime of Vladimir Putin, which was trying, you know, to find some points of reference, some kind of uh, points where to step in, where how, how to find its stability, uh, how to stabilize, stabilize itself, not just, you know, to steal money and, you know, to enjoy themselves, but to have some ideological ground basis for, uh, for its existence, raison d'etre, uh, so to say, and the Russian Orthodox Church essentially had provided the uh, the kleptocratic regime of Vladimir Putin uh, with uh, a raison d'etre, and this was exactly the ideology of the Russian world. Now, uh, and then, as we understand now, uh, that ideology has been was instrumentalized and became the the driving force, the engine of the uh, of the war uh, in in Ukraine. Uh, that's why, to a great extent, I believe, um, my opinion is, proper, is maybe uh, overstretched, but I believe that without this ideology, which had been produced by the church, the ideology of the Russian, uh, the Russian world, probably the war would have been different, if it would have happened at all, because a lot of people were exactly incited to come to fight in the east of Ukraine, being driven by this ideology of, you know, we protect our Russian Orthodox civilization against the godless West. And uh, uh, it's our kind of cosmic mission uh, to uh, fight against those godless powers uh, in, in Ukraine. And this was exactly the core of this uh, ideology of the Russian world that I witnessed uh, personally with my own eyes. Uh, being burned, uh, born in um, uh, within the Russian uh, Church, so that is a kind of a, a prehistory. Another another prehistory behind this book. It comes from my personal experiences somehow, which I try then to uh, substantiate with uh, with theory, uh, like uh, uh, the theory about civil religion, political religion, uh, which I think we will discuss uh, soon. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, uh, uh, Kirill. You mentioned a few interesting things, and I think one of the buzzwords which was fascinating to me was that you mentioned the political orthodoxy re-emerged. I'm wondering uh, where does this come from? What's the ontology, what's the origin of this politicized orthodoxy or political orthodoxy? And also, how how, how different is that from, from, from the idea of Russian world? Idea of Russian world as a project, idea of Russian world as an ideology, and idea of Russian world as, as a kind of cultural mechanism uh, of protecting the Russian language, or just a purely kind of the cultural um, uh, uh, mission. And so I'm wondering how does that 
kind of trinity of ideology idea, the project of the Russian world relate to the idea of political orthodoxy and what the, what actually what does reemergence mean in terms of what, what's the uh, origin of this? Uh, is there something we have to dig deeper into the orthodox Christian theology and look at that or is there any relationship with how the concept of war is understood in orthodox theology? Would you comment on, on that? Thank you for this question. Yes, indeed. I exactly uh, chose the word re-emerged instead of emerged uh, because I think it is a reincarnation of old ideologies, of, of earlier ideologies. Uh, before I started studying those ideologies, as most kind of uh, church bureaucrats, I was unaware about, you know, the previous versions of uh, of the uh, of the uh, these ideologies, um, and I'm pretty sure that even you know the hierarchs, even the patriarchs who promote those ideologies, they they just don't know uh, still that they existed in in the past, and they had very bad uh, you know consequences. Um, uh, so most people are ignorant about what existed in the past. I mean, even during the 20th century, uh, and uh, which keeps those ideologies re-emerging. <laughs> um, that's why I think it is important to know the true history and the, 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 you know, the previous versions of, of these ideologies. And did, they did exist. I, I believe that they were behind many um, historical developments in the Orthodox countries uh, during the 20th century, uh, especially in the interwar period. Uh, if we look at uh, you know the the uh, nationalistic ideologies uh, in Greece or Romania, the this, the cases that I studied in my book, uh, we can see that it was already there, and there were pre predecessors to the ideology of the Russian world, like for instance the uh, the Mihalia idea, the great idea, uh, which uh, um, emerged from uh, the nationalistic circles in Greece and which drove to a great extent, you know, the Greek um, political and military actions in Asia mi uh, Minor uh, in the beginning of the 20th century is a kind of predecessor of the Russian world. Or if you take, um, again, the idea of, uh, of Great Romania, uh, which was popular in the interwar period, which was a nationalistic kind of ideology, uh, very anti-Semitic, it, uh, it really contributed, you know, to, uh, to, to the Romanian anti-Semitism, and which was uh, fed by, you know, theology, by theologians like Nikifor Krynik, and uh, was uh, supported by clergy, by priests, uh, bishops, and even patriarchs in Romania. Um, we see how uh, it comes again and again, uh, the same ideology in different, uh, under different faces. Uh, so to say, um, you can say you can name you can identify these ideologies as a sort of as a Byzantinism. Some sometimes I I generalize you know these ideologies as Byzantinism, uh, the references to you know to the Byzantine past and the attempts to reincarnate Byzantium in the under the present circumstances, which was exactly the driving force behind you know the Romanian nationalism behind the Greek dictatorships under Metaxas or under the Black Colonels. Uh, late in the 60s, um, uh, even now in Russia, what we, we what we have is a kind of reincarnation of Byzantinism. If we uh, uh, bring uh, to our mind, you know, the the scenes, a stage so so uh, 
kind of strikingly of the visit of, of Vladimir Putin to Mount Athos, where he was received as a Byzantine Vasilevs and essentially was treated as a as a Vasilevs. And uh, these pictures were promoted to the you know to the Orthodox world, and many people loved it. They they thought, well, eventually now we have a, you know a king, an Orthodox king, a, a Byzantine Vasilevs. So all those things they still work in people's minds. And they incite people, you know, to act accordingly. Therefore, the Russian world is just an iteration, as is one of, of the of many forms of the same ideology, which I I could call Byzantinism or Orthodoxism, if you want, or you know, Easternism. Um, they they have to do with the geopolitics. Uh, they uh, they evolve usually uh, in the rejection of of the other. In this case, of the West. Uh, they are based on conspiracy theories. Uh, they employ, uh, you know, the orthodox identity. Uh, they uh, are usually anti-ecumenical, uh, anti-Catholic, you know, anti-Protestant, whatever. Uh, I recall in this regard a conversation I had with a prominent hierarch from Greece soon after the war in Ukraine started, and uh, I asked him. He was quite, a, you know, an educated. Metropolitan, and I asked him what he thinks about about you know the the war in Ukraine, and he answered to me, of course this is the Pope who is behind this war, which was kind of crazy, but this is exactly how many people perceive you know these conflicts as a conflict as a civilizational conflict between you know the East and the West, between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity, uh, between the two civilizations. It's a very peculiar uh, uh, interpretation of the famous theory of um, uh, Huntington about the clash of civilizations. And I should, I, I can witness kind of personally, a person who was behind the uh, ideology of the Russian world in Russia, uh, Father Sierra Chaplin, who was probably, you, you've heard of, uh, of him, his name. Uh, he passed away uh, more than a year ago. Um, and he was to a great extent a, a real kind of the brain behind this ideology of the Russian world. And he actually studied Huntington. And I remember how he visited, you know, some conferences of neocons in the United States and how he was fascinated by, you know, this idea of the clash of civilizations and how he tried to bring this, uh, this idea to, to the Russian soil. Uh, I should say he was not aware about the criticism against Huntington in, you know, among the sociologists and, and political scientists. Uh, and he, his kind of... Uh, uh, fascination about Huntington was a bit childish, you know. Well, it's kind of a new a discovery of a new idea, and he desperately wanted to to bring this idea to the Russian soil, and uh, actually he succeeded to a great extent. That's why uh, it's a combination of different ideas. It's a very postmodern project, I I would say. Uh, it's it's really it's not a, really a modernist project, as uh, in contrast to the you know the earlier iteration of this ideology, which were modernist it's a postmodern project which is which is which consists of pieces and bits of you know of the modern theories of the old ideologies and uh, they are mixed up uh, don't uh, forget that uh, in russia to a great extent these ideologies were mixed up by people like Vladislav Surkov, who is who's a very postmodern kind of uh, mind uh, the same was part of several chaplain he was a very postmodern mind so it's a kind of uh, um, a mixture of different pieces, and it's really important and um, interesting to uh, untie, unpack, 
uh, this ideology and to identify those different pieces, something that I try to do in my book. Thank you. Fascinating. Um, I'm wondering, you, you mentioned a few themes which are, um, I think, related to the, the, the wider arg argument that we're trying to discuss here. The orthodox link with the, with the sort of geopolitical or the nationalist uh, sort of the project. I'm wondering how does orthodoxy or how do orthodoxy and, and nationalism fuse? Since when is this fusion, and how does it relate to the concept of war? And in a way, how it is theologically understood? Because yeah. in, in a way, it's kind of counter theological uh, to to just fuse uh, nationalism and, and Christianity in a number of ways. Again, we can refer to New Testament and, and the foundational text of Christianity. In a way, this is uh, and, and numerous decisions uh, of different councils uh, condemning uh, the kind of this uh, ethnophiletic uh, tendencies of the Orthodox Christianity. I'm wondering what is what is the nature of this interaction? Yes, well. Um... Uh, first of all, I identify two kinds of nationalism which um, inspire uh, the Orthodox um, people, folks, uh, hierarchs or theologians or just uh, folks who, you know, who get excited about, you know, ideologies. Um, one is uh, what I call uh, the Balkan style of nationalism, which is really kind of ethnic-centred uh, with... Uh, uh, with um, a particular and homogeneous nation at the core of those ideologies, like the Serbian or you know Bulgarian or or Romanian um, and uh, or Ukrainian, uh, and in contrast to this kind of Balkan style of nationalism, there is a kind of supranationalist nationalism as it were which which is imperial or civilizational that's that is exactly what what the russian world is russian world is not a nationalistic ideology to a great extent extent it is an anti-nationalistic ideology and we should not forget that nas russian nationalists are uh, persecuted in russia <laughs> well the most kind of notorious nationalists go to prison and um, uh, yeah, and uh, the the Russian Russian nationalism, ethnic nationalism, is not favored in in Russia. What is favored is a different sort of uh, exceptionism or exclusivism. And I think ex I think exceptionism is a better word uh, for this. Uh, the the idea of the exception of the ex ex exceptional Russian Orthodox civilization. Which drives really people to you know to do what they do. Um, uh, it's it's the idea of civilization which is kind of behind it. The idea of, of well, some people call it the neo-imperial kind of ideology, uh, and the efforts of Putin is essentially to restore a sort of quasi-empire, as we know. Um, and uh, yes, so this is what I call a civilizational nationalism. Uh, uh, it, uh, speaking about Ukraine, for instance, it would, be, it would be too simple to say that what is happening in Ukraine is it just a clash of two kinds of nationalism, you know, the ethnic Balkan style of nationalism and the Russian kind of imperial nationalism, uh, which, uh, you know, clash with one another in Ukraine. I think it's not... Uh, uh, it's an oversimplification. Would be an oversimplification to to say like that because in what we what we uh, have in Ukraine is really kind of marginal uh, trends of ethnic nationalism and civilizational nationalism. And what is more important is kind of a civil an emerging civil society which is 
which does not identify itself with either of the of these two ideologies. Um, uh, so my point is that uh, uh, to a great extent, the conflicts, the wars in the Orthodox milieu, uh, they are waged, incited by either ethnic nationalism, as it was, for instance, the case in the Balkan Wars. Soon after the the uh, former Orthodox subjects of the Ottoman Empire liberated themselves, and they you know became independent, they uh, soon after that they they started uh, fighting each other in the Balkan Wars in the beginning of the 20th century, 1912, 19. 13, two Balkan Wars. Uh, so they were driven by the ethnic nationalism, as it were. And uh, uh, sometimes uh, civilizational nationalists could, could drive wars, as it was exactly the case of Russia against Georgia and against Ukraine. Uh, uh, so both nationalisms are evil, I believe, even though originally they were not. And uh, I think we need to look uh, with more nuances at, uh, at the phenomena of nationalism, because nationalism originally, I believe, in the, in the framework of the big empires of the 19th century, like the Ottoman or Habsburg or Russian empires, they emerged as emancipatory uh, movements to liberate themselves you know, from the imperial power. Um, and nationalism originally, the national awakening was, uh, well, I think it was a healthy, uh, phenomenon in the beginning, and then it transformed to a kind of more evil uh, thing when uh, when the nations who had been liberated started fighting each other. Uh, the same is with the imperial nationalism. You can you can say that well, uh, the imperial uh, ideology may um, uh, uh, may um, uh, contain nationalism. And it, indeed it does, but at some point it turns into something different and it, it starts fighting, you know, uh, those emancipatory movements. And it was exactly the, what happened in, to Georgia and, and Ukraine. Ukraine and Georgia tried to emancipate themselves, you know, from the uh, Soviet past. And they were stopped by, by the Russian wars to do so, uh, or at least Russia tried to stop them. Uh, so in this case, we have an imperial kind of civilizational nationalism trying to contain a movement which was emancipatory, which was really liberating and, and renewing and modernizing uh, for, for the societies. So that's kind of my distinction between two kinds of nationalism and between the earlier stages of nationalism and the later stages of nationalism. Um, thank you very much. And um, you, you, you touched briefly the, the, the problem of uh, you know, the political religion and orthodoxy, you know, in different levels, you analyze that in your book. I'm wondering how is it different from other Western modes of political theology? Is there is there a significant difference out there? And, 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 and speaking of these differences, is there sort of the orthodox theory of just war, uh, orthodox Christian theology of uh, just war? Or so when is it okay to get into war for an orthodox statesman? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, it's really difficult to answer this question. Well, first of all, I don't believe that there is such a thing as an orthodox, you know, political theology or uh, which is very much different from the, the Catholic or the Protestant uh, theologies. Uh, after all, politics is everywhere the same and the wars, uh, you know, are the same and people die in the same way, whether they are, you know, orthodox or Catholics or whatever. Um, uh, however, the legacy that the orthodox church has inherited from Byzantium uh, is indeed 
nuanced. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> uh, well, Byzantium, well, or the Eastern Roman Empire existed, you know, for a thousand years, and it was in, in, in constant wars. Uh, there were no long periods of peace for 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 uh, for the Byzantine uh, state and and the churches, which means that the church permanently had to deal with this dilemma. Uh, to kill or not to kill, you know, and if to kill, for what reason? Um, and it's interesting, uh, I observed it in, in many kind of late Byzantine attempts. If you go, for instance, to places like Mistras in, uh, in, in Peloponnesus, where the, a small despotate, the uh, rudiment of the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire existed, survived in the, you know, in the uh, 12th, 13th centuries. And you go to the churches there, they are full of frescoes and images of military saints, uh, which is an interesting uh, indication that the weaker the Byzantine state became, the more militarized it would, it would turn. Uh, and uh, by the way, you can observe the same in Russia. Russia has become extremely militarized in terms of images. If you take, you know, this newly built uh, church dedicated to, you know, to the gods of war, <laughs> some people joke, uh, under the auspices of the Ministry of, of Defense of Russia. Um, uh, and uh, it is full of, you know, paraphernalia and, and you know, symbols uh, of, of war uh, embedded in the, in the church. So it's, it's really... Uh, if you draw a parallel between Byzantium and Russia, you can see that how weak is Russia? It is weak exactly because it tries to, you know, to produce, to project those military images. Uh, it's like the late Byzantine, those late Byzantine uh, despotates, which were weak and therefore they projected themselves as military powers through, you know, icons and images. So uh, in, in Byzantium, in, in, the Eastern, in the traditional Byzantine Eastern Christianity, it depended, it evolved this idea of, of war. I don't believe that there was something that we can call a just, uh, a just war. Uh, in the East, I think we more frequently use the term sacred war, something that, for instance, uh, the mentioned uh, and late uh, Father Sevilla Chaplin used to, uh, to explain the, uh, the Russian involvement in Syria, in the Middle East. Uh, soon after Ukraine, and uh, uh, he exactly, he called the Russian intervention to Syria a sacred war, something that, well, resonated with, you know, people's uh, minds and uh, in Russia, uh, I think, though the Kremlin didn't like very much this expression, uh, but many people liked it. So, uh, it's, it's a big subject. I tried, by the way, to explore it in... Uh, uh, in some other kind of articles that I wrote, uh, it's still uh, unexplored to, to, to a great extent. So we don't have, you know, theologians like uh, like Yoder, for instance, who explored the idea of war uh, in in the West. Uh, well, we have people like Jim Forrest, uh, who is um, who writes on uh, on the Orthodox uh, pacifistic theology. Uh, but I think, the, to a great extent, this field is unexplored, so uh, we need still to connect those dots uh, from the Byzantine past with the, with the present situation. I would, I would uh, uh, kind of in, indicate, suggest to think along this terminology of sacred war or, you know, 
uh, holy war civilizational battle uh, that people exploit uh, quite often in the Eastern Christian context. Thank you. Um, if we look at the, um, I mean, the, the elements of Orthodox theology, which elements of Orthodox theology bear significance for motivation for war or conduct of warfare? Are they ones which are intertwining nationalism with sort of the broader macro categories, or which are those elements of Orthodox? If they are, if they're one, I mean, we 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 are talking about Ukraine, Georgia, Armenia. In Armenia-Azerbaijan conflict, there was this idea, at least the discourse of the uh, the, the you know, religious war, as if it was it was between uh, uh, Christians and Muslims. So the discourse was uh, along these lines. In, in Ukraine and Georgia, there was this inter-Orthodox war, if you will, but yeah. there was more more broader significance, geopolitical significance of it was yeah. was something like. Um, you know, the civilizational war, as you said, like there was this idea of us versus them. So I'm wondering which are the elements which which are instrumentalized to produce yeah. this kind of a trigger for uh, the conduct of warfare? Yes, I think, first of all, it's the idea of authority per se, uh, that uh, the idea which holds that we, the Orthodox, we hold the truth. Uh, others are, you know, heretics, heterodox. Uh, and that's why we need to protect our truth, uh, not by arguments, but by weapons. You know, that's why, well, the Orthodox, they are encouraged to think that they protect their faith, that they are in, the, in a besieged uh, you know, castle, uh, like people who propagated the war against Ukraine in Russia. They said, you see, we are relatively small in the ocean of, you know, of the heretics, of the, you know, those godless Westerners. And they try, they uh, assault us, against us, and they try to quench our, you know, the truth that we hold. They try to compromise the truth that we hold. So we need to stand for truth, for our orthodoxy, to protect ourselves. And in order to protect ourselves, we need to attack, you know, preventively. Uh, the West in Ukraine. Of course, it's, it was a completely constructed, it was a completely imagined picture, but it worked, this imagined uh, kind of uh, uh, motivation. Another thing is that um, has to do with, uh, with this is, I think it's a transformation of the idea of, of the spiritual battle. The idea of spiritual battle is as pertinent to, well, to the Eastern Christianity and its asceticism. We know that Eastern Christianity is quite ascetical. And, uh, um, you know, since the times of Anthony the Great and his spiritual battles against demons and, uh, you know, all those uh, supernatural powers, uh, it was important, an important idea in, Eastern, in the Eastern Christianity that we fight against, you know, <clears throat> the evil forces. And at some point you can, you know, stop considering those evil forces as supernatural natural, and begin considering them as political, you know, as the West. And this is a kind of transformation of this idea of spiritual battle against the evil, global evil, cosmic evil, to particular political, you know, regimes or political uh, devices. Uh, that's how the West becomes evil. It's a sort of transformation, projection of the, you know, of the cosmic evil upon particular parts of, uh, of the world. Um, so it's another kind of explanation that may, work, may explain probably the Orthodox motivation to go and fight and kill. 
uh, you know. Uh, of, of course, all those are abuses, you know, all those are uh, misinterpretations of the original ideas. Uh, but you cannot understand this misinterpretation without understanding what is behind it. You know, this idea of orthodoxy, this idea of, you know, holding truth, uh, this idea of uh, fighting, you know, evil. Uh, if you project all those ideas to the political scene, then you get, uh, you know, those wars in Georgia or in Ukraine or elsewhere, and possibly in other places in the future. I wonder how were these wars, the three wars that we're talking about today, the the the, the Russian-Georgian war, you know, the war in Ukraine, as well as the Armenian and Azerbaijan war, how were these wars perceived and explained by other churches? Um, yeah, and, and was there inter-Orthodox solidarity with these yeah. people suffering in these wars? That is the most kind of uh, outrageous for me uh, in this uh, story about the, these wars that uh, 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 it seems that the you know orthodox fellows seemed to be uh, not caring at all about what happened i remember the only for instance the only statement by the greek church officially regarding the war in ukraine was the one when the synod of the greek church uh, send, decided to uh, ask the Archbishop of Athens to send a letter to Vladimir Putin to allow the import of Greek olives to Russia, you know, because they were embargoed <laughs> by, by the Russian government. That is the only, uh, to my knowledge, official reaction of a church, of an Orthodox church, you know, to the war in Ukraine, a request to lift embargo on olives. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, um, uh, otherwise, the churches just, you know, kept blind eye. Blind eye. Uh, for many, uh, not officially maybe, but for many hierarchs, and uh, there is a bunch of hierarchs, you know, in different churches uh, who are in support of the Russian policies, aggressive policies, because they exactly, they dream those Byzantine dreams about, you know, the reincarnation of the Byzantine uh, kings, Vasilevsis. And uh, they hope that this is properly that is the Messiah. It's almost, you know, this Jewish sense of now the you know Byzantine Messiah has come and uh, he will restore you know the, the former glory of, of Orthodoxy as it existed in in Byzantium, which is a complete uh, kind of construct and uh, it's a, uh, just a childish dream. But many people dream it. That is the problem. That's why they keep a blind eye, I think, on, on the conflict. So people tend to ignore the real bloodshed, the real kind of uh, violence, aggression, shooting, for the sake of ideas that they they dream about, you know, Byzantium or uh, a political entity uh, which uh, is based on symphony between the state and the, and the church and the state. And to, to, to many Orthodox, I think, uh, they are frustrated with the idea of the separation between the church and the state. The idea which most Orthodox countries, uh, well, all Orthodox countries live with. There is no, not a single Orthodox country which is not, uh, uh, where the church is not separated from the state. And still people, you know, dream of this symphony. I call it, you know, this, uh, um, uh, uh, how do you, you call it phantom uh, ache or uh, pain when you lose your, your limb and 
it's still you feel like like it is there and you feel this pain so for many orthodox it's like a phantom pain when they lose the state as their supporter in the symphonic relationship and they still linger for this lost limb and uh, for many it is more important than the real pain that orthodox people you know feel in in the war when they die and you know get wounded and suffer so it's um, one of the, I think, one of the, of the explanations how this solidarity, the interorthodox solidarity completely failed uh, regarding Georgia, for instance, because not a single church also uh, voiced uh, uh, up, uh, spoke up about the, the war in Georgia. All the churches ignored, completely ignored this war. And now again, the church in Georgia seems to ignore what is happening in Ukraine, even though the church, the, well, the church has suffered and the Georgian people suffer the same thing uh, as we, we, we do in Ukraine. Um, and I'm very ashamed personally about my own church in Ukraine when we kept silent about, you know, about the war in Georgia in 2028. 20, well, my personal feelings remained my personal feelings about that war. So it's really, it's, it's, it's not just to blame others, it's also about, about blaming ourselves. And be, before moving to a more optimistic scenario, how can religion contribute uh, to, to peace, I, I wonder if you can elaborate a little bit between distinction, what, what's this symphonia and uh, what, what is it for those of maybe in the audience who are not familiar with these terms. And Weber talked about Cesaropapism, for example, but there's an interesting uh, component of relationships between the church and state in Orthodox tradition, which, which uh, Kirill referred to, the symphonia. And, and how, how does that work? And what sort of the basis does it, does it have? Well, since Constantine, uh, as you know, the church, uh, Christianity was absorbed to, to the empire somehow, has been absor absorbed. And in the Eastern Christian, uh, Eastern Roman Empire, uh, this situation continued longer than in any other uh, part of the world. Um, uh, and this uh, uh, conflation of the church and the state uh, has been called a symphony. Um, I think it was first called uh, like that by Justinian in one of his, of his novellas uh, in the 6th century. And since then, a symphony uh, has been a norm uh, well, in many parts of the world, including, including Byzantine churches. And as I said, Byzantine, the Byzantine churches had the longest memory about the symphony. Uh, the longest part of their history uh, happened under the auspices of the symphony, of this symphonic relationship with the, with the state. So when, uh, when the uh, separation between the church and the state happened in the Eastern Christian countries, uh, it was uh, usually a painful experience. Uh, quite often it was, it was violent. In contrast, for instance, to to the Western European countries where, uh, or to the United States, for instance, where the uh, church religion was separated uh, from, the, from the state, well, more or less by agreement, not very much violently, if you accept maybe the French Revolution. Uh, in the Christian East, it was more violent. If you take, you know, these violent uh, communist regimes, uh, they really kicked out, you know, the churches from, from the relationship. Uh, and still, I believe the churches looked, sought for symphony, for some kind of symphony, for substitutes of symphony. I even believe that uh, a sort of the mode of relations between the church and the communist countries, uh, communist regimes, was a sort of symphony, quite surprisingly. Uh, it was a very strange symphony. When uh, 
the church was officially not associated with the state, but it offered many services to the state. If you take the Soviet Union and how the, well, the beginning with Stalin, uh, the Soviet uh, regime used the church to promote its own, you know, foreign politics in, in the Middle East or Eastern Europe. Uh, that is a sort of symphony. Or some church elites like bishops uh, were, you know, benefited by the regime. They really lived much better than many other people even though they lived in a sort of golden cage, but still they enjoyed themselves a lot under the Soviet regime in the framework of this very strange and peculiar symphony. So um, you can also call symphony uh, the relationship between, a relationship between the church and the state nowadays, even though formally it is not. According to the Russian constitution, uh, uh, the church is separated from the state, but Unofficially, it is not. It is very much a part of, you know, the establishment. And uh, therefore, this relationship between Putin and, and the church is, is pretty much symphonic. Um, and uh, I just want to remind you of, uh, you know, of, of this uh, the, uh, seminal film movie produced by <clears throat> now Metropolitan at that time, Akim Andrei Tikhon Shevkunov, uh, The Fall of the Empire, about the Byzantine Symphony, which he... Uh, promoted. It was a completely kind of faked uh, story about Byzantium, about Byzantium that never existed. Uh, but he produced this movie exactly to uh, uh, to suggest a program of relationship for the church and the state under Putin in modern Russia. So he suggested a model of church-state relations which resembled the Byzantine symphony and became to a great extent the actual model of the church-state relations in, in, in Russia. Don't forget that, well, Tikhon Shevkunov represents, you know, to a great extent, the political establishment of, of, uh, of Russia nowadays. And he is one of the ideologists of, of this, uh, of this um, relationship between the, the regime and the church. And he envisaged the, as a, the basis of the relationship, the Byzantine symphony. And last question before we open up the floor to the discussion is how can religion contribute to peace? Sort of the functional level, on institutional level, you name it. What's the, what's the future? Yes, despite all the abuses and all the uh, mishaps in the relations between the church and, and the state uh, in Russia or elsewhere, not just Russia, but other countries have been affected by the same kind of plagues. Uh, I still believe that the church has a huge, tremendous potentiality to be a peacemaker, to be a positive contributor to, to the social development. Uh, <clears throat> I actually, uh, in the wake of the you know, revolution of dignity in Ukraine in 2014, I developed this idea that the church needs to have a relationship, a symphony, not just with the state, but also with the society. So we can kind of transport or plan, transplant the idea of symphony from the exclusive relationship with the state to the exclusive relationship with the, with the society, with the civil society. And if the church aligns itself with the society more than with the state, this can be, I think, a positive contribution to, uh, to the social developments in, 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 in the modern societies, in the modern countries. Uh, Actually, quite surprising, I recently read uh, you know, a passage from Gregory Palamas, a late Byzantine thinker, a theologian, and uh, I was very much surprised to find an idea in one of his writings 
where he writes that the church, he says, uh, is almost the same with the kingdom, Vasilia, he used the word Vasilia, and Politia. He used the word Greek uh, word Politia, which in the traditional uh, Byzantine culture meant republic or society. So before Hegel, 500 years before Hegel, uh, Gregory Palamas essentially distinguished between the state and society, which was kind of a wow kind of you know thing for me uh, that a, a guy in the late Byzantine times could write, could imply something uh, which is very important for our days, that the church should align itself not just with the state but also with the society. And I, I think this is the key uh, somehow to, uh, to a positive contribution. Uh, of the modern churches to uh, to the developments in the modern societies to support the civil societies the developments in the society well more than to support the regimes and the state thank you very very much kirill um uh, for a very interesting conversation now we open up the floor to the to the audience so please whoever wants to um, voice the question. We don't have a large audience, so please uh, either raise your hand in here in the chat function or just directly speak. Sophia, Sophie. Thank you. Um, question, Kirill. Thank you very much for your fascinating talk. A question um, for the future relations of the Russian Orthodox Church and society, because I think this is the area in which the symphony failed completely. Although it was expected, you know, during perestroika that it would, you know, somehow rejuvenate the, the Russian society. I think this is the area where it failed with the state. The symphony, as you quite correctly stated, was very much successful. What do you think about the future of uh, this relationship between Russian Orthodox Church and society in Russia and how it can evolve? Thank you for the question. I think it is pretty clear, and many people feel it, that uh, the symphony between the church and the state has failed in Russia. It has led, you know, to, to a dead end. Uh, it, it, it doesn't have future. People still don't know what will happen, what will um, substitute this symphony. Uh, I hope and uh, I wish uh, the, the, the old symphony could be substituted by the symphony with the, with the society, but certainly it's very clear that the old symphony doesn't work in modern Russia. And uh, the church loses, and the recent uh, sociological uh, surveys indicate that the people lose their trust in the church. Uh, it drops down. And so the church loses support, popular support, and the state gets frustrated with it, with it, with, it, with the church to a great extent. Uh, it's like uh, more like a burden for, for the state, I believe. So it has failed. I mean, this symphony, uh, but a new symphony has not been born yet, and it's still unclear uh, how it will it will happen. Uh, a more interesting case is Belarus, I believe. Because what is happening in Belarus is exact, it's also a, a failure of the symphony uh, with Lukashenko, which is a very peculiar symphony because Lukashenko, as you know, declared himself an Orthodox atheist. Uh, and uh, still, you know, he supports the church and the state and the, the official church uh, supports uh, him despite all the atrocities and, you know, oppressions that he exercises upon the society. But in Belarus, 
Yes, the hierarchs, most hierarchs, not all of them, some of them are really with the people, but most hierarchs are with, with the regime. But at the uh, lower level, the level of priests, we find fascinating examples of uh, the church aligning with the society, having uh, or developing a sort of symphony with the protesters, with the civil society, which is which is being born in in Belarus. And this uh, applies well to the Catholic Church. We know well the Catholic Church is the most advanced because of its um, great social doctrine and you know the experience of the Catholic Church in different contexts. So the Catholic Church leads to a great extent, you know, in this uh, relationship with the civil society in Belarus. But the Orthodox Church. I mean, priests and activists, uh, they do the same. Of course, it leads to the segregation within the church. So the top of the church goes with the regime and the lower level strata of the church go with, with the people. Uh, it's bad for the church because the church gets divided, but this is inevitable if you have this kind of, if you try to stretch yourself between you know, the regime and the people. Something that we managed to avoid in Ukraine, because in Ukraine there was a similar danger in 2014. Uh, when, yes, the bishops would go with Yanukovych, would support Yanukovych, and many of them did support Yanukovych, but, uh, you know, priests and, and, and people supported the Maidan, and in Ukraine we avoid the, the situation of the division between the churches, within the churches. So bishops eventually, you know, supported the protesters, and even the sinners, the hierarchs, official uh, bodies of the churches, they made statements in support of the Maidan, of the protesters. Uh, and uh, uh, we avoid this, this kind of division that the church in Belarus is experiencing. And the church in Russia is just beginning experiencing in Russia. Thank you. Other questions? Mika? No. Um, I have a question. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, perceiving from the outside, to me it looks like uh, rather many Orthodox churches are kind of uh, playing the second fiddle or second violin in the symphony. Yeah. Uh, like, um, is there any, or to which extent uh, do you hear any kind of like um, protest against this idea of symphony? Uh, like uh, thinking that, okay, uh, shouldn't we uh, actually uh, proceed towards a proper separation? Uh, or does everyone uh, suffer from the phantom pain? Yeah. Well, uh, the churches are not monolith, monolithic, in, even in Russia. Uh, the thing is that the church is very diverse. Many people think in different ways, but they speak up in, in the same way, if, if they dare to speak. They don't speak, they don't you know, express themselves, but they think and they reflect, which is probably important <laughs> uh, as well. So I think there is a growing dissatisfaction with the existent model uh, of the church-state relations in Russia. But uh, this dissatisfaction is not being expressed properly yet. Uh, there are some voices, but they are, you know, they are rather weak or silenced immediately. Um, and um, uh, but the dissatisfaction is growing. That's that's very clear. Um, 
Yes, speaking about the second fiddle, uh, I think it's a good way to put it, even though in Russia it's more nuanced, I believe, because um, do you remember the first times of Putin? How, what kind of ideology he, he articulated or projected? Next to zero, I believe. He was kind of next to nothing. He was, he's a very uncharismatic figure, right? Even though, regardless of what people believe about him, he's a very uncharismatic, he's not a visionary. He's a mediocre kind of, you know, kleptocrat. Uh, the vision came to him later, you know, this great vision. And I believe this great vision came to him from the church to a great extent. And I remember very well the moment or, you know, a short period of time when the Kremlin adopted the language which had been produced by the church. When the speakers in the Kremlin started speaking, you know, uh, language, uh, meta-language, you know, phrases like uh, traditional values, like, uh, you know, staples, you know, all those uh, lexems which had been produced by the church. And I, be I believe that many people in, in the Kremlin, including Putin, Putin himself, were inspired by, you know, religious leaders in Russia, particularly Patriarch Kirill, who is a very charismatic figure and he's a visionary indeed. Um, so at that moment, I believe the church didn't play a second uh, violin, it played the first one. Uh, then, of course, Yes, because the church doesn't have money, you know, and tanks and, and other resources. It cannot play a leading role. But it's certainly uh, the church, I think, incited, created a momentum uh, for an ideological uh, evolution, very, very rapid. Uh, you can call it an ideological revolution within the Kremlin that led it to, you know, to where it is now. Hans. Yes, Th thank you for this great talk and sorry for not being able to switch on a picture on this side of Emirates and start your talk. Um, I, I wonder how do the, how do ideas percolate up and how do the ideas, I mean, you, you, you mentioned that, that you saw some of the discussions. Now we have probably romanticized notions of how certain ideas developed over time in the Catholic church and, and, uh, and kind of were developed and what role different institutions played in that. And I'm just curious whether you can give us a sense of the texture in terms of, and I mean, this almost relates also to the previous questions of how alternative notions can maybe uh, develop, not necessarily all of them good. I mean, you could, you could have radicalizing tendencies that well, uh, th there as well. But in science, I guess we also talk about a certain sociology of knowledge in terms of how paradigms get evolve over time and succeed. And so I'm just curious whether you can get, give us a sense of how that works. Yeah, I could probably indicate a couple of uh, things that um evolved and somehow bounced, you know, from one tradition to another one. I believe that to a great extent, the Orthodox Church uh, picked up, uh, forgotten to a great extent, or even lost fight of the Western churches, particularly the Catholic Church against, against modernism. Uh, uh, it was a big deal for the Catholic Church, as you remember, in the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, when, when modernism was, you know, anathematized and, and, and and prohibited and, and, and things like that. And to a great extent, this fight against modernism continued until Vatican II. 
And then it was more or less subdued and became less important for the Catholic Church. But quite surprisingly, it became very important for the Orthodox churches in the post-Soviet time, when you know the Soviet um, the churches emerged from the Soviet regimes, uh, and then they uh, you know discovered for themselves this. Uh, uh, one century old fight against modernism, and that's how <clears throat> uh, those uh, anti-modernist campaigns started in, in the Orthodox Church, quite surprisingly. Um, another thing, uh, another kind of uh, framework to understand the uh, intra-Orthodox um, uh, ideological developments is, uh, I believe, the, the idea of culture war. Well, it emerged in Germany, of course, in, in Kaiser's Germany, uh, but it became particularly important in the United States uh, with its two-party system and, you know, this really nasty fight between the Republicans and Democrats and how we know how the society is divided. And it's interesting that this kind of culture war uh, has been replanted and uh, reproduced in the Orthodox milieu to a great extent. And uh, in the Orthodox, within the Orthodox Church, like the Russian Church, we have the same thing. I, I see, I hear the same kind of rhetoric, you know, the liberals versus conservatives or conservatives versus liberals, uh, the same kind of, you know, intolerance to the other side, the same kind of culture wars that uh, the churches fight in the United States and the society is divided uh, by in the United States. And we have the same kind of you know, divisions and fights in the in the Orthodox milieu nowadays. I'm sure it's not just the Orthodox Church. We see this kind of divide in the Catholic Church as well, you know, with the Pope Francis on the one pole and, you know, the opponents like Cardinal Berker in, on the other pole. Um, or the Protestant churches also, well, if you take the Anglican Church, for instance, the same kind of division over, you know, the same-sex marriages and, and other issues, similar issues. So it's really... Uh, a general framework, I believe, these culture wars, uh, that also explains to some extent what is happening uh, in the uh, in the Orthodox milieu, and, and that's 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 the reason, for example, why Putin uh, presents himself as a leader of the conservative global conservative movement, this uh, uh, conservative international, uh, and the Church supports him in 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 the efforts to to present himself as. Uh, a leader of the global conservatism. But can I just follow up with one question? Uh, yeah, yeah the, the, I mean, in 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 that regard, I mean, what is the, what's the transmission mechanism? Yeah, so I mean, in, and 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 I'm just not sufficiently familiar with the particular context in order to give you the first hook there, so to speak. But let's say if you want to find out what's going on in Switzerland, you 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 do read the Neue Zürcher Zeitung. Yeah, things will, ideas will pop to the surface and the debates will clash there and various people will clash. And I mean, one, one argument for the, let's say, moderate development in Georgia of theological thought has been that there weren't really the transmission uh, institutions. The monasteries were... Uh, not really the the level of institutions of learning, which had sociological reasons. They didn't have the financial base to actually do that. There was a lot of foreign domination. They were under a lot of pressure. So what's the area of contestation where you put ideas forward? Do you have to be in Georgia? My sense is you have to be at the synod and you have to be close to the patriarch to whisper certain ideas 
in so that, let's say, ideas of abortion suddenly be, that in Georgia was not a topic. That's at least my understanding for a long time was not a topic. And now slowly starts being seeping in. I don't think there's a, a newspaper, so to speak, that you would try read in Georgia to get a sense of what goes on. You would you would have to be very close to the court and then maybe follow what certain priests say. And increasingly, they'll say it on Facebook as well in Georgia. So I'm just curious how that yeah. what's the arena, so to speak, for that discussion? Yeah, well, in Russia, it's media. It's certainly media. It's public media. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's very powerful. Well, the church has developed a, well, a really kind of strong machinery of, you know, reproducing ideas and sending messages. Mm. And those messages are uh, very, uni very much unified. They are very much kind of um, uh, synchronized. Uh, and the speakers who are allowed to speak, and this is very strictly controlled, who is, speak who is speaking, who is the speaker. Uh, uh, yeah. And those who, you know, who don't speak along the line of the party, they are uh, silenced immediately. Uh, if you take, for instance, riot, the case of riot in Russia, it's it's a very kind of clear case. So, um, uh, yes, there is a, a, a huge machinery of uh, of producing and sending messages. Uh, and this machinery, uh, which works in the church, is uh, synchronized with the state uh, propaganda machinery, and they synchronically produce messages that uh, just brainwash people. You know, within the church and in the society, and that is the point that the church produces a lot of, uh, you know, those cleaning, you know, soaps that uh, that state uh, media then you know use to brainwash people. Uh, they the church produces narratives mm. uh, and uh, it contributes with its own narratives uh, to um, uh, to these messages. And well, the messages of the of the state media are very anti-Western, conservative. Well, they pretend to be conservative, and uh, this is exactly the rhetoric of the church. And the church has picked up those messages, those ideas, you know, from the global discourses. Either they are, you know, culture war discourses or anti-modernist discourses in different churches and traditions. And this is a very, again, a very syncretic or postmodernist, if you like the word, um, kind of construct when they take different pieces from different traditions, put them together, stitch them together, and then they uh, propel them, you know, through the uh, media machinery to uh, to receive to the recipients, to people uh, within the church and the society and globally. If you take, for instance, American evangelicals, they are fascinated about these kind of ideas. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like the World Council of Families that came to exactly. Georgia exactly. two or three or years ago. Frank, yeah. Graham, uh, Frank Graham on, and, you know, his evangelicals. Yeah. yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Sure. Um, um, since we're getting to the to the finish, I'm, I'm just... Um, if it, uh, are there any questions, by the way? I don't want to take the... Just I, I will um, ask a few questions, which I think are really uh, fascinating based on, uh, on the discussion we had. Um, I'm just being curious, is it maybe the role of religion in Russia is, is uh, the, the way we see it is the role of church in this whole Kremlin's project is a little bit too overrated. I mean, the, the way probably Putin looks at uh, the Kremlin looks at the church now is that it's one of the many instruments of, you know, spheres of influence to, to, to just influence the geopolitical kind of constellation. 
and they're reliant on on, on on radical nationalists that were reliant they're, they're having the the clans they have different structure they have ideology they have this kind of opportunistic uh, you know um different different groups and and the silaviki and number of conflicts within it so what i'm saying is that how important really religion is in the in the functioning of russian foreign policy yeah. uh, is the role a little bit overstated and uh, how influential for example was uh, kirill's uh, 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 approach towards uh, uh, Ukraine uh, about the intercontestional changes. Yeah. Uh, for example, I, I, as far as I understand, the Russian Orthodox Church was advocating for an intercontestional, um, for 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 the prevention of these changes, right? From the newly, uh, from from the Russian Orthodox Church and the newly created uh, Orthodox Church of Ukraine. So I'm wondering how how important that role is. Yeah. Well, I think it is not as important as it used to be, say, five years ago. And I believe that this uh, decrease, uh, the de degradation of the role, uh, was caused by the pandemic, because the Russian church was really weakened by, by the pandemic. It couldn't, you know, produce narratives, you know, convincing narratives anymore uh, to, you know, to answer people's questions about, you know, the coronavirus and what to do with that. And the church was not particularly helpful for the Russian society, the Russian state. state. So the pandemic contributed to uh, to this weakening of the role, which is also uh, uh, noticed by the uh, sociological surveys. Uh, but it used to be more, more I think, uh, uh, important and underestimated, I would say. Uh, say in 2014, 2013, 2015, maybe 2016, uh, when the Russian church refused to go to the Council of Crete because it felt itself so powerful, so self-sufficient that it didn't need you know, other churches, any other kind of uh, group of gathering like the Panorthodox Council. Um, uh, and uh, I think that was the peak of, of the influence of the Russian church. And I, I think it should not be well, it should not be overestimated nowadays, but it should not be underestimated at that at that time, uh, five six years ago. Um, and I still believe personally, and this belief is based on my kind of personal uh, experience and eyewitnessing, that the church was very instrumental, uh, one of the most important uh, providers of. You know, ideology for the Russian state when it started, you know, expansion and started its military actions uh, worldwide at that time. Thank you. Um, other questions? I should probably mention, excuse me, because uh, we declared that we will discuss a bit uh, of Armenia and the conflict in, you know, in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, I think, uh, yes, the, the nature of the conflict is different there than the nature of the conflict in Georgia or in, uh, or in Ukraine. Uh, uh, and yet there is a parallel, there is a similarity point of kind of reference that is important. I think uh, what happened in, in Armenia, well, there are different historical reasons, of course. You know, we should not forget about the, the war in Artsakh in, uh, in the 90s. And so forth, but I think it, it needs to go back to. Uh, we need to really to go back to uh, to the history of the genocide. I think you probably know this excellent book uh, by Harvard University Press, published recently, about the Armenian genocides. Um, that and it, this book demonstrates very well how Turkey 
played down and continues playing down the genocide and how it, you know, it punishes even those who, who try to raise up the issue. Um, so this is a kind of crime against the Armenian people and the Armenian church and the Armenian you know, state that happened 100 years ago and uh, which was to a great extent forgotten, uh, untouched, remained untouched, undiscussed, unexplored properly. And that's why it reemerged in our days. That's why I think it is very important to, you know, to analyze, to explore, you know, the nature of the war in Georgia, in Ukraine, in order to prevent the repetition of these things, you know, in, in the future. It is crucially important to, you know, to talk about this. And I think it is crucially important also to talk about the role of the church in those events uh, in order to help the church to avoid in the future this kind of involvement that it had had, you know, in the, in the wars. I have a question here. What is the unifying narrative for the Orthodox Church beyond nationalism? Well, it's, it's emergent, I believe. Uh, we should not uh, re-use uh, the old narratives. Uh, and I personally believe, I, I myself, I personally try to construct this new narrative. And um, uh, I try to construct it around this concept of the triangle uh, between the church, the state, and the society, probably in the other order, the church, the society, and the state. So I try to promote this idea of, that the old symphony should be substituted, the kind of two-dimensional uh, piece of uh, you know, a line connecting the church and the state should be substituted with more spheric triangle, a triangular of uh, the church society in the state. So the, the, the society, civil society, should be admitted by the church as an important player and a stakeholder in the, in the development for the church. I think this is the basis of the new narrative. Excellent. Um, um, thank you very much, Kirill. Um, it was very interesting, very interesting to, to listen to you as always. And thanks to the audience who joined us today. And we'll continue this series in the next uh, month. And um, yeah, I'll be sending the details by email. I know most of you are on my email list. so. Thanks a lot, everybody, and all the best.